Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. All right. If you know me well, you know I love a good statistic or survey. So it's survey time. Put your hand up and keep it up if you sleep at least four hours a night. All right. Wow. We got no aliens. Way to go, guys. Fantastic. Five hours a night. Keep them up. Six hours a night. If you could see the nervous looking younger parents with young children going like, do we sleep six hours? (laughs) Seven hours a night. Look at our healthy church. Eight hours. Oh, I'm down. Nine hours. Brady. Ten hours. Anyone get ten hours in? Wow. Eleven hours. Anybody? Did you know before Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, all Americans slept on average 11 hours a night? A little less in the summer, a little more in the winter. Depends where you lived. But there are circadian rhythms. You just stuck with the sun. When the sun was up, you were up. When the sun was down, it was time to go to bed. Lamp, uh, candlelight, not so effective. But within 50 years of the invention of the light bulb, Americans would sleep instead of 11 hours, nine hours. And today, the average American only sleeps seven hours. And I'm telling you the truth, we didn't evolve. We just got busy. And we started to accept just a low level of exhaustion all the time as our new normal. That it's just okay to be tired and half asleep for most of your waking hours instead of decide to sleep and rest as God intended us to. And this isn't to make us feel guilty, but just to be aware that we are living in a century of unnormalness, that no other humans in 10,000 years have ever lived at the level of exhaustion and work that we do. In fact, 40 years ago, we're actually working more now than we were 40 years ago. Even with all the time-saving devices we have in our life, we're actually working more hours than we did in 1980. And so the question is, is technology evil? Is it, you know, was, it was the light bulb and now the iPhone got us and the Netflix? Or is it an issue of the heart? That if we can stay up, then we should stay up, then we should keep going. Is it an addiction to productivity, to life? of setting standards for ourselves and others that are more or less unsustainable for the long haul. And I would argue the reason why I wanted to pick this spiritual discipline is I believe our culture, and it infects our church and every church, that there is a culture of exhaustion that just is okay. And if you're exhausted all the time, it's tough to give your focus to anything. We live a life filled with exhaustion and distraction, so spiritual disciplines feel impossible or short-lived. But if we rested more, then we could love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength more. We could love others the way we wish we wanted to. We could have more time and energy for our kids, our neighbors, our lost friends, our lost co-workers. And we could put as much energy upon the most important things. And so as we dive into the principles of Sabbath and the different ideas of rest that God gives us, I want you to think, yes, it will cost me things. That's what we talked about in this series. To do a spiritual discipline means you have to take something else off the table. To spend time in prayer means you need to say no to a thousand other things that you could do to do one thing. 
Every one thing you do is a necessary no to hundreds, maybe thousands of other things you could be doing. And today I want to talk about our bodies, something that's not talked about in church that much, that your body needs probably more rest than you're getting, no matter your life stage, that we need to sleep like teenagers, y'all. Doesn't mean we don't work hard, doesn't mean we don't work well, but there is a way and a different life we could live that's countercultural to where we've been drifting for about 150 years. So as we look at this passage, we see that Jesus is in trouble again with the Pharisees, that Jesus is practicing the Sabbath, but the Pharisees are saying, hey, 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 you are doing it wrong again. Look with me at verse one and two. It says, at that, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some grain, some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, why were they out in the fields watching Jesus and not doing their Sabbath? That's its own question. Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? So Jesus quickly points out to him, hey, walking through this field, plucking little grain heads for subsistence eating actually isn't violating any of the Old Testament laws. It's only violating the laws that you've put on God's law, which is called legalism, extra laws on God's law. And then Jesus gives these kind of obscure examples to us. He says, hey, King David ate the bread of the presence from the table. Not supposed to do that, but that was okay because they were really hungry. Then Jesus points out that everyone should rest for the Sabbath, but actually priests are allowed to work and guards at the temple are allowed to work. So, and we let animals eat on the Sabbath. So why can't these people also eat their meal on the Sabbath? And since Jesus is the greater priest and, and greater temple than any priest or any temple, then Jesus gets to make the rule, gets to make, gets to make the rules. <laughs> Jesus is in charge. He made life itself. He's the Lord of the Sabbath as verse eight says, and he implores them to think about Hosea 6, 6. Look with me. To be honest with you, I I like to preach the highlight reel of my life. This was a game changer of reading in my Bible um, to finally read this. And when he says, go think on this, I went and thought on it and I couldn't figure it out forever. I had to ask everyone I knew in my new Christian life in college And when I found it, it was like finding the treasure in the field. In Hosea 6.6, Jesus says, go learn what this means. It says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That Jesus is pointing out to them that God wants your heart. That God wants your heart more than any religious custom. That you can get all the religious customs right, but if your heart's not in it, it doesn't matter. See, in in Hosea's day, they were doing all the sacrifices at the temple, but their heart wasn't in it to worship God. Therefore, he's telling the Pharisees, you're out here correcting people in grain fields over rules that you made up. Let me tell y'all, your heart is not in the right place. You're doing right sacrifices in your mind, cutting open the right animals and forcing laws that you think are very important but your heart is not with God. Your heart should be merciful and see, hey, these guys are hungry. They're grabbing some grain. That's fine in Jewish gleaning laws. What they're doing is okay. And it captured my heart to see that God actually wants my heart. 
He doesn't just want to change my behaviors, but he wants to change me from the inside out. Yes, my behaviors will change, but it starts from the heart. And if the heart's not right, the rest doesn't matter. Just like Jerry Maguire told us. Some of y'all are like, I'm way too young for that movie. Tom Cruise was young once, guys, and he was in that movie. And what the Lord cares more about the heart, and the point of this is that Jesus desires your heart to be at rest. He desires in the Sabbath that your heart and your life would be at rest. The Sabbath is not another thing for the Jewish people or for us to add more rules to our life, to get it right, to impress God. Instead, it is a time to cease working and to rest. The point is the rest. And just as Jesus is pointing out the Pharisees were so busy with their religious life that they missed the rest of God, I would say, I believe we are so busy in money and addiction to speed in our life that we too miss the rest of God. They missed it over adding religious rules. We miss it by being too busy and caring about money way too much. And we too are too busy for God and too busy for his rest. When God invites us instead to look to him, look to his rhythms of work and rest as a way out of being exhausted all the time. Look with me at Genesis 2. This is what God desired. This is what God models for us. The second chapter of the Bible, God has been creating the universe for six days. And on the seventh day, God finished a work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We are meant to work. God worked for six days. We work is not the enemy. Instead, work is a good thing in our life. Work should be hard because this world is sinful and tough. Work should be good because we should work for things that are good. We should resist underhanded ways of making money, evil ways of treating people. And work should be to God's glory that you were made with gifts and skills and character and things to apply to your work. Work is a good thing. However, we see after six days of work, God himself rests. Is God tired? No. Does God sleep? No. So why does God rest? He rests for us. He rests to show us the way life should work. The word sabbat, that's where we get Sabbath, is what it uses here. And it means to cease, to stop, to sit, to lie down, but also to delight and to admire. It's kind of easy to see God resting to delight and admire all that his hands had done, but also provide a way forward for us that you weren't just meant to work to the bone, that there is a rhythm to this life to embrace. And to go against that rhythm is to go against the grain of a piece of wood. You're going to get splinters. You were meant to work hard, but also rest well. There's a vision of your life that instead of just working and working till you get vacation or get some time off, that you instead work from your rest. You show up for the other six days of your life fully rested deeply in the well of God's goodness on one day that makes your other six days lived so differently. 
God demonstrates rest to us because we're not God. That's the creature-creator distinction. Whenever you're doing theology and thinking deeply, you got to just remember, we're not God. We are the creatures. God is limitless. We are limited. We got to sleep. We got to eat. We got to take naps sometimes. Anyone big on naps? I wish I was. I'm, I'm not really. If we skip sleep for like three days, you will start to hallucinate. And eventually your body will shut down for you and you'll fall asleep involuntarily. You were meant to rest. You just can't function without it. And if we, re- we resist this idea of slowing down and stopping our work, because there's a huge lie in our culture that goes like this. If you just work hard or long enough or at just the right thing, your work will fulfill you. If you just work hard enough, if you just work long enough, or if you find that thing you're really good at, then your work will fulfill you. And this is why I love talking about idols here at Citizens, because it's easy to point out, this is a sin, that's a sin, this is a sin. Well, the bigger sins than these named sins are these things called idols, the things you worship other than God. And work is a good sounding idol. Most people are like, yes, I want my son or daughter to work hard. Yes, I want them to succeed. Yes, I want to succeed. You want to succeed. Everybody wants to succeed. But if you love it more than God, if it were to be taken away and you would be devastated, unrecoverable, if you're using a thing to find ultimate happiness somewhere else than God, then you have an idol. Your spouse could be an idol. Love could be an idol. Work could be an idol. Children, they're like the mini idols. They're running around. They have my heart all the time, but suddenly you're starting to warp your whole world to base decisions off making this little guy or gal happy. And that's crazy talk. They're like one, two, three, four, five. They're not in charge. Hopefully. And the idol of work is seductive, especially in our culture. Because who doesn't want to be a winner? I was talking with Kate in the back about commercials and how they're set up. And she was telling me every commercial has a hero, the person you're supposed to be like if you use Bounty, the quicker picker upper towel or drive that Acura or whatever it is, there's a hero that you're supposed to be able to see yourself as a thinner, prettier, cooler, obviously driving up the coast in California version, richer version of yourself. That's the hero. And that's how marketing works. That's what they're trying to get us to do. And what it is, is just stoking the idol factory of our heart. If we were that successful or worked that hard or got that lucky or won that million dollars, I could be like him, therefore I'll buy an Acura or whatever else. But we must say no to idols because as long as we worship idols, we can't worship the living God. Just as when we preach the book of Haggai, the Lord must be first. He can't be second. He can't be a side dish or you're not treating him as the Lord. See, the promise of this lie that if you just work hard enough, you just work long enough, you just do the right thing, work will fulfill you. The promise is this work will make you happy. The problem is that God promises the opposite with our work. By Genesis 3, God promises work will be hard. Can it be satisfying? Can there be good things? Can you provide for your family? Can you provide for yourself? Yes, those are all good gifts in work. You are meant to work, but this idea that work will make you ultimately happy will fall flat even before the fall and after the fall 
Work might be the tool of oppression in your life. Work might be the tool of abuse in your life. Work might lead you down a path that's illegal and wind you up in jail. Work and unemployment and struggle might be some of those painful parts of your life. Work might put you in debt as you take on school loan after school loan after school loan, hoping to get a job that never really pays out. Work could be this thing of tremendous evil in your life. So to put all your hope into work and say, I'm willing to live an exhausted life to keep up this idea to my idol, any master that's not the Lord eventually becomes an ugly master. And the idol of work will be a very ugly master in time, even when the good gifts come. And the antidote to an overexpected and an overworked life is rest. It's the pattern that God has set out for us that we need rest. And that's where we must see that God gives us the good gift of rest. And God codified rest as a Sabbath in the Ten Commandments for Israel. Take a look at this. It's the longest of the Ten Commandments. It's the one with the biggest explanation. It's the fourth commandment and says, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. God made it said, blessed it and made it holy in Genesis. We are to keep it holy. This is what it says. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. You may have grown up in a church or maybe you've been influenced in life to believe to be a Christian means to be exhaustedly busy. That it's to go to as many Christian things as you can and do all the things in life until you're exhausted. And I'm here to tell you that being a Christian means having a balance of work and rest that God has set out for your life. You should appropriately work and appropriately let rest. God made the Sabbath holy in Genesis. He codified it in Exodus. But then we get a surprise in the New Testament that we find out that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath, becomes Lord of the Sabbath, or is the Lord of the Sabbath. And most scholars agree that this was just a sign of all of our works, all of the time, that one day we would not have to strive and work, and instead the grace of God would be here, and it came in Jesus, so we no longer have to keep the law of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfills the Sabbath, but we don't have to keep it as a law, but now it comes to us as an invitation. Just as we don't have to give temple offerings and have strict codes of what our giving is from the Old Testament, we're invited now to give generously, God, so we are also invited to rest, not as a law, but under grace. As Jesus has fulfilled the law, now you're actually free to rest that your soul can come to God and take God up on this idea of trusting him with your time. Just as giving and generosity is the antidote to the, the idol of money, so rest is the antidote to the idol of work or accomplishment or success. What would it be like in your life, not out of law keeping, but out of your freedom to say, God, I would rather work six days do all my work, go to my job, do my chores, my major chores, my non-life-giving chores, do all my labors. I want to just work for six days. And then I want to rest, trust, and worship you on the seventh. 
trusting that six days with you and trusting you at the seventh is a better idea than me working seven days on my own power. What would it be like in your life to work six and rest one, trusting God with the whole week instead of work seven and trust yourself to provide for all your needs? What would it be like if you started to trust God as that father that he gave you every skill you have, your moment you were born in history, your job, your livelihood, everything depends on God and his goodness as a gift. What if you said, I look back, I know I don't have to fulfill the Sabbath. I don't have to keep the law. God's fulfilled the law, but the principle of rest has not changed. That I could trust God with my rest. I could trust God to step out and actually be counterculture to this country, to this world. I could find rest in God. While Christ fulfills the law for us, we're still human. God rested before sin in the garden as example to humans before sin. This idea of rest is not uh, given to us because we're sinful. It was given to us because we're human. It came before the sin. And so I want you to look at this chart with me. I want you to evaluate how's your heart doing. Because as you find rest in Christ, our salvation, they died for your sins and rose from the dead. Your soul should be at rest. And a soul that's at rest should stretch into your everyday. With eternity secured, the most important thing, it should affect how you live your life in the everyday, especially when it accords to your rhythms of rest and work. Having a restless soul, this this should say world, that's my typo. In the word, that ain't good. The word is good. The word's on this side, guys. A restless soul in the world looks like always faster copying others. There's no time to imagine your life or imagine new. I just need to do what, whatever my neighbor did. I need to do whatever anyone did. You copy others and better is faster. A soul resting in Christ is daily intentionality following Christ. There's no need to copy anyone but Jesus. And you can copy the master. A restless soul in the world is worried about getting more all the time. The only good thing for your business is to grow and get bigger. The only good thing for your household is to buy a bigger household. The disease of more sets in where it's never, ever enough. But a soul resting in Christ can focus on what's most important. A restless soul in the world is reactive to everything. Everything that's said to you, every action that happens to you, every piece of mail you get, you immediately have to react and usually react harshly in ways you regret. Every time you're frustrated with a child or your boss, it's a dangerous thing to have social media at your fingertips when you're living in a reactive way to the world that all you do is respond. You're never proactive when your soul's not at rest. But when your soul's at rest, you can be contemplative in responding. You can take time to digest things. Your life's not in so much of a hurry. A restless soul lives with entitlement and envy among friends. Social gatherings become competitions of what to get out of them, thinking where you stack up, where a soul at rest can enjoy and be at ease with friends. A restless soul is crippled with anxiety and control issues. Things that feel out of control are just massive amounts of anxiety. And it's okay to be anxious sometimes. There's anxiety-inducing things. But if that's the dominant place 
There's a better place to be anchored in Christ, embracing God's control over things. A restless soul is often confused on their purpose. A soul at rest is filled with clarity on Christ's commands. A restless soul is discontent with their circumstances. A soul resting in Christ is content no matter the circumstances. There is an entirely different way to live your life when eternity is secure in Christ and stretches into your everyday emotions, your everyday decisions, the paces. And it's okay to be on this left side and to take that to Christ. This isn't a checklist where you're supposed to be like, I'm all on the right, feeling good. No, it should be a mix of left and right saying, Lord, I wanna trust you for more. I want to trust you and repent of things that I'm finding, trying to find rest in my work, trying to find rest in the next vacation, trying to find rest in all the things. When instead Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, says, come to me and take my yoke. It is light and easy. You can have the light and easy yoke of Jesus and you can pursue a new way in this world. In Mark 2, verses 27, 28, this is actually the same scene that we see in Mark 12, but we get a little more of what Jesus said back to the Pharisees. And then Jesus said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You are a limited body with a needy soul, church. And God has given the Sabbath, but given rest to you as a gift. You were never meant to be so busy you couldn't rest. You were never meant to be so busy you couldn't sleep, at least for long periods of time. You were never meant to be so busy that you're too exhausted to do spiritual disciplines or love others well. And some of us in this room just need to say, hey, just because you can live in fifth gear in your car of your life and drive that fast, there's probably no good reason to be above second or third gear unless there's a big crisis on your hands. And to learn to downshift, it's okay to go through life in second gear. That it's okay to rest and work well. When you refuse the rest, you refuse God's design for humanity. When you reject your humanity, you're steering towards Adam's original sin of thinking we know better than God. And if you refuse to be a limited creature, then what use will you have for your creator? That's the deadly pill of restlessness and continual activity. Is at some point it says, I've rejected my design and I have no real need of this creator. I included this rest as spiritual discipline because Jesus demonstrates it, but also it's so obvious this crisis of our culture. We live in a culture where everything slow and hard is bad and everything that's fast and easy must be good. And the problem with that is following Christ is often slow and hard. Spiritual fruit is fruit that grows on the tree of your heart and your soul by the stream of water. It's not microwave food. It's not fast food. A lot of the things that God is trying to do in you are going to take attention and focus over weeks and months and years. And we must be a people that embraces that instead of runs from that. The spiritual discipline of rest is for three big things. First, it's to remember you're a human. Not a limitless God, you have real limits. Spiritual discipline of rest is for stopping work 
to say, I can put my work down and trust God. My phone doesn't need to be on all the time. Maybe I can take my email off my phone, keep it at a laptop or however, if you're in an office job setting, that there are times in your life you don't have to be on it, whether you practice a Sabbath day or not. Third third part of rest is a space to worship God, to keep spaces in your life holy, to try to bring your best self to your spiritual discipline, not your most tired self. What a transformative thing to say, I want my best half hour this day to go to the Lord, not my worst, not my sleepiest. What would that look like in our life to embrace rest? Rest keeps our work in check and it opens us to trust in God and gives space for greater spiritual disciplines. Here's the truth. If Jesus had time to rest, then you do too. Jesus's life was full, but not busy. Jesus's life was on purpose. Jesus at times was moving from thing to thing, but it also says he withdrew to lonely places 22 different times through the four gospels. He's reclining at tables with people. He's not skipping sleep. There's a way we can live this life faithfully and not submit to the exhaustion of our culture. So three ways to apply, church. I'm going to give you three quick ones. First, let's eliminate the word busy from our vocabulary. Amen? Amen? When someone asks, how are you? Let's just say no to saying, oh, I'm just so busy. Because what saying, I'm just so busy, what it says, it says a way of saying, I'm really important. That's the world's way of saying, I'm so important, I'm so busy. But how good would it be to take that back and take some responsibility over why we're busy? So if you feel busy, say, yeah, life's really full right now. That's great. You're acknowledging, even saying out loud, your life is really full, maybe too full. Maybe say, when if you feel like you want to say, I'm busy, say, I feel really overwhelmed right now. Because that becomes an invitation to say, please help me. I'm busy, says the world's attacking me. I'm overwhelmed, says, please help me. Or maybe say, real honest, say, hey, I'm overbooked right now. I take responsibility over my life and schedule and I have overbooked it, and perhaps I shouldn't. I think we can eliminate the word busy and start to have a different conversation. When someone asks you, how are you? When I say, how are you, Clay? Clay can say back to me, I am sad, I am angry. He can say an emotion and then tell me why. I'm happy. Why? Because I just played with my kids for three hours and it went amazing. I'm sad because I just played with my kids for three hours and things got really hard. Imagine if you dropped busy trying to impress people and instead led with the emotions in your heart to try to connect with people. How wildly different would even your small conversations be to say, no, I'm going to put down the success work idol that says I'm busy all the time. And I'm just going to share my heart and say, why? And if you're like, man, that's a strange conversation. I don't have conversations like that. You can just look back and say, thank you and tell me more. That's a great second question or request. Tell me more about that, Clay. Clay's a good friend. He surely will. Second thing, would we here at Citizens start valuing rest every day and every week? Would you have the courage just to look back at your week and look back at your day and say, did I make time for rest? Or did I just race to the finish and crash with Netflix? That's no way to live our life. There is a better way. We're going to have to say no to say yes to spiritual disciplines. 
it's great if we just talk about all these cool spiritual disciplines and then don't do them. That's not great. We will have to say no to the way we live to pick up new spiritual disciplines or go deeper in prayer or the word or any of these other ones. And the third, maybe you saw the chart and you realize that perhaps you don't have the eternal rest of Jesus. The, the right side of the chart felt like a different country or a different island. And if that's you, I want to invite you to trust Christ. I want you to trust the Christ who died for your sins, your failures, your busyness. He died for all that on the cross. And he rose again to give you his perfect record, his perfect life, that you would be saved for all of eternity. And it would flow from the inside of you out for the rest of your life. If that's you, I would love to talk to you after a service of how you can follow Christ even now. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 